Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM. You can check us out live and in the moment at RadioNorthland.org. That's also your source for the Wrestling Memories page for which you can listen to, well, now over seven full years of Wrestling Memories episodes. I'm Glenn Broggett and with me this week we are uh, uh, so, so uh, very, very happy to have him back in the fold. Uh, I know for, again... For, for some sad circumstances, but you know what? He's here today, and it's great to have him in. He is just the go-to guy when it comes to pro wrestling. This, you know, pro wrestling historians go, pro wrestling nostalgia. He has uh, been a fan since he was a wee little guy, and he has uh, dedicated his life, and it's his passion, the pro wrestling, and he's here today to help us celebrate the life of Harley Race. He's the man who's he's the OG around here. He's Minnesota his- wrestling historian and author George Shire. George, it's great to have you here. Here on this very special edition of Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Well, thank you, Glenn Brogich. You know, after that introduction, I think we're out of time for today, so it's been nice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I see, see, in recent years, I, I'm, I'm tapering off a little bit. In recent years, I would have probably been about uh, halfway through my introduction of you, so I'm, I'm trying to get better, trying to get all the great kind of crammed into like a minute intro. Well, well, anyway, thank you very much, and yes, it's uh, always fun to sit down and talk some radio. I've done a few bro- uh, podcasts in the last couple of days. Um, unfortunately, you know, we end up doing these and we're talking about another one of, uh, my heroes, I guess, probably, I don't know how much you saw of Harley race, uh, you know, being a younger fan, but, mm-hmm. uh, certainly when I was growing up, uh, Harley race was, uh, he was one of my young heroes. So oh, man. we'll talk about him today. Well, you know, you, you talk about uh, as far as uh, I mean, you got to see Harley from basically from Jump Street all the way through his long, uh, distinguished career, and man, what a career it was! So many championships, so many th- moments, so many memories that were made. This guy was, uh, I mean, by the time I got into wrestling around '82 and '83, of course, he was on the uh, the down end of his career. He was still ended up he was NWA champion in 1983, but mind you, he was kind of you know starting to slow down his pace. And I mean, if anyone could uh, be allowed to slow down their pace uh, through the years, it had to be Harley. But I got to see a lot of Harley uh, here and there. And, uh, you know, and, and, and through the years, and I, I remember him a lot, though, for being a manager as well. So I got to see him in, in that different phase of his career. But you know what? Man, when I read about him and, you know, some of the stuff I've watched on YouTube, you know, the books and all of this, he was just such a workhorse, such a survivor. He was just, you know, when he died, it seems like one of the last real men passed away. Yeah. Well, and you know, the thing about Harley, Glenn, um, he always was more of a a methodic. I always use the word methodical. He he moved. He wasn't a, a speed demon in the ring. Don't get him on the highway because, man, he traveled. <laughs> but in the ring, and I'll tell you a story about that as we go on. But uh, in the ring, he was he was very calculating with what he did. He wasn't a, a guy that was moving around real fast, but everything he did always looked real. It looked like it hurt. And it, it, he made you believe. And I know you said you saw him towards the end more as a manager and that sort of thing. I know towards the, uh, the end of his ring career, he was managing Big Van Vader and he managed Lex Luger. Um, made a good voice for both of them in their, their uh, younger years there too. And, uh, but Harley was, uh, he was a kind of a wrestler that I had someone ask me the other day. Our friend Brian Last, we were talking. Okay. And he asked me, he said, was Harley Race one of your favorite wrestlers? 
And that was an interesting question because I have a small list of really personal favorite wrestlers. Yeah. Harley wasn't what I would say my all-time favorite wrestler or he was he was in that list somewhere. And he was the kind of a guy that um, I just knew when Harley Race was on a card. And like you said, I saw him all of his early career. I mean, he, when he came to the AWA, he was just a 20, 21-year-old kid, which is rather unusual in that era because normally in the wrestling business back in that age, a, a wrestler had to work about four or five, up to 10 years in the business in the preliminaries maybe doing a little more traveling before he finally got to those main events. And Harley was just a little bit early. He was one of those lucky ones who was just a natural talent. And I had Brian last. He, uh, he asked me the other day, he says, so was he one of your favorites? And I said, no, I wouldn't put him on my favorites list, but I'd put him on a list that said when Harley race was on a card, I was excited because I knew it was going to be a good card. And I'll tell you this. You may remember back in 1986, the AWA put together their attempt at their last survival attempt is what I called it to uh, mm -hmm. stay alive when they put on the Wrestle Rock promotion at the Metrodome in Minneapolis. And this was a card that if you look at the lineup on it, they had like 10 or 12 matches, 13 matches. I mean, it was it was star studded with all kinds of talent of, of that current time period and the tickets for this card a ringside ticket went for one hundred dollars and this was 1986 in april of 86 and i remember saying one hundred dollars i mean that's a lot of money even today for a, for an event oh for sure but but we're talking 33 years ago and it was $100 for a ringside seat. Now, I had had my normal ringside seats in the arenas up until that time, and I wasn't going to go. I said, there's no way, because my normal package wasn't included for this Metrodome card, and I wasn't going to go. So there's no way I'm going to pay $100. I mean, the normal average ticket then was around, I think it was... Uh, it was under 20 yet, if I recall correctly, for a, for a ringside ticket. Maybe like $15 or something. I could go back and look, but $100 was, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, so at, the, at, at the time. The card. They're announcing all the lineup. And we had, you know, Nick Bockwinkle was going to meet Stan Hansen, and Vern Gagne was going to be getting a chance to wrestle at the Sheik. He was going to come out of retirement if, if uh he had a chance to wrestle the Sheik, and we had Nord the Barbarian. We had Bruiser Brody on the card. We had the Freebirds. We had uh, Rotundo and Wyndham, Barry Wyndham on the card. We had the, the Fabulous Ones. They were on the card. Uh, Greg Gagne, uh, Jimmy Snuka. I mean, it, it really, it just read like a who's who card. And that $100 still seemed high to me. And I just listed a lot of wrestlers who I really enjoyed watching. Well, then they announced that Rick Martell was going to wrestle against Harley Race. <laughs> I called my wife. I was at work. I got the news. I called my wife and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I think I just found a reason 
for that $100 price. <laughs> and that's the truth. Harley Race was the one wrestler that I just, and I hadn't seen Harley for a couple of years since I'd been, you know, he'd been back here. Um, it just made it worth it because he was that good. And he was going to go against Martell, who was a heck of a worker. I said, I'm going to the matches. I bought the ticket. Of course, I still have it as a souvenir. So does that make Harley a favorite? I don't know, but he was the one wrestler that convinced me out of all of the names I mentioned to you, and I didn't even mention all of those that were on the card. I mentioned the one guy that pushed me over the edge. So I'd say that tells you how really I respected and enjoyed watching Harley Race. That's the thing, George. I mean, you talked about it. You, like you said, this was a guy that would make you get to the arena. This was the, the, the tipping point. I never knew that this was the tipping point for you to, to get to, to Wrestle Rock. See, this was a story that I don't think we ever really went over here on the program. But no, uh, I wasn't going to go. I wasn't going to go. So what did you think? I mean, of course, this was latter period Harley. Uh, what did you think of, of, of the match itself with, with him and Rick that went down that day in the uh, Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome? I didn't get disappointed. Harley and, and Martell, you know, and I'm going to be honest with you, without looking, I, I don't recall how it ended. I think Harley got disqualified. I'd have to look. But the match was exciting, and that was the one match that I was excited to see. And you know how much I appreciated Nick Bockwinkle. I mean, and Nick oh, yeah. was a friend, and Nick was a personal favorite on my personal favorite lists. Um, and all the other names I mentioned, but Harley was the one guy. So I think that really says something. The thing about Harley Race, and as I said a moment ago, he always made you believe that it was real. And I can't tell you the number of wrestlers that I've talked to over the years, Larry Hennig being the closest to Harley, at least for a good period of time, certainly when he was here. But last November, when I sat with Larry all day when he was at that uh, Robbinsdale Brewery event that they named the beer after him. And Larry and I were talking, and, and Harley Race came up because Harley had been in the hospital on and off right around that time, too. And Larry was telling me some stories, and he said, you know, Harley and I have always been friends from day one. We've never had a crossword between us. And we've stayed in touch. And he even laughed. And I'm going to tell you the story about driving, too. But Harley um, just was one of those guys that every wrestler I ever spoke to about him, they always had nothing but respect for him in the ring and what he represented. Harley was one of those guys that just transcended what the business was about. He was a roughneck. He was a, he was he wasn't a fan favorite, but he was just a a um, just a guy that you believed in, and if you doubted wrestling was real, all you had to do was watch Harley Race wrestle, and you said that one's real. And the, the old adage used by more than one wrestler, they always said Harley could go into the ring with a broomstick and wrestle the broomstick. And he could convince the fans that the broomstick was going to beat him or be better than him. Now, I don't know how you can get a better compliment than that. And I would say it's true 
because Harley was as a champion, and that's where he fits so well into the NWA championship mold, because the NWA champion from the from its inception in the late 40s, all through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the NWA champion had to be a guy who could go into any of the territories that the NWA sent, that he was sent to, and wrestle their local hero or babyface or their local heel or villain and make that person that he was wrestling look like he was going to win the match and he got the better of Harley. That's the type of mold that the NWA champion was. And that's why when you look at the names that held that title, for example, when you had Luthez, the master of them all, and you had Pat O'Connor and Buddy Rogers and Gene Kaniski and Dory Funk Jr. and Jack Briscoe, and that's just some of the NWA champions. That was the way they all worked, that they had to convince the fans that they could be beat. And when the fan walked away, they thought their hero or their local heel could have won the match. And Harley was so good at that. He was so good at making you believe that he's going down for the count and walking away still champion. That's what made him so good. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can put it into words. You got to watch his matches and I've watched them on video and I'm not much of a video uh, wrestling watcher anymore. And of course there's so limited the stuff out there and what is I've seen a million times, but Harley is one guy that uh, I guess I'm very, very glad that I saw him from the onset when, uh, you know, he made his debut in the twin cities, AWA, way back on September 11th of 1964. And he got an immediate push in that first match. He won over a veteran at that time, Tex McKenzie. And um, he made his tag debut with Larry Hennig on September 25th of 1964 on Minneapolis TV. And he had they had a match against Eddie Sharkey, who everybody knows that name. Oh, sure and a wrestler named K.O. Ken Yates. And Kenny Yates was a former boxer, and he got into wrestling, and he was just a, he, he looked a tough guy, but he was just enhancement talent, you know, back in that era. But the team took off right away. They were, and, and Harley was only a, a young 21 years old, and he'd already been wrestling about four years. Um, I was talking with another uh, person the other day on a podcast and Harley got his start in the wrestling carnivals at about age 15, 16. He was born in 1943. So you figure this kid was pretty young when he was doing this. And he naturally was tough. If you're in these carnivals putting everybody over, you're a tough kid. Mm-hmm. Which brings up the subject that, again, Larry Hennig and a lot of other wrestlers, they always make the comment, they said, if I was in a real fight and I needed one wrestler to have my back, Harley's the man because he doesn't know fear. You Those know, are good compliments. 
Oh, absolutely, George. And you know, you talked about how he uh, he cut his teeth very young. You said it, you know during the, through the carnival circuit, and uh, yeah, I mean, we've heard so many stories about just the the unique things that came out of that, and how that was worked up, and how that be eventually evolved in what we had for for modern wrestling. But you know, we, and you you follow his career. I've watched some of his doc the documentary that was put out by uh, Michael Elliott a few few years ago, and uh, Harley talked a lot too about you know training to be a wrestler. And how at, a, at that age, he, uh, I mean, you talk about the term old school, and that's been overused to, to, to the uh, nth degree, but Harley, the way he was trained and the way he found his way to wrestling is a clear example of probably the last class of true old school, uh, you know, grit and manual labor and how he learned uh, from, from the Zabiscos. Uh, slat, you know, it's just an interesting story in and of itself, how he got into the business. Right. Well, the thing is, too, here's a kid who's, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. He didn't want to go to school anymore. So what are you going to do? <clears throat> and so he he has the right guys. Uh, I can never pronounce the Zabisco's first names, but it's uh, Stanislav and uh, uh, what's the other one? Do you Wal- have it handy? Was it Waldek? L- 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 Vladek? Vladek. Yeah. There we go. There we go. It took, it took a team know, effort. They, they, they were, you know, true old school 19 19- early forties, thirties, grunt and groaners who were, who were real deals. And again, coming out of that carnival background and, and, you know, they took Harley under their wing. And the other thing that Harley had going for him was Gus Karras, who was the uh, St. Joseph promoter and had had his hand in the central States territory for many, many years, was a member of the NWA. Harley had him as a backer and, uh, Shortly before, this was around 1960, probably 62 or so, um, Race is working with a wrestler, more of a journeyman wrestler, but he'd been around a while, John Long, Johnny Long. And Harley hooks up with him and becomes his brother, which was the common thing back in that era because there were a lot of brother tag teams. They both had blonde hair. They were similarly built, so, okay, they're brothers. And Harley was Jack Long for uh, a period of time. And during that time period, Harley ended up uh, breaking his leg. And it was broken so bad that the doctors in Tennessee had actually told him, you're not going to wrestle again, and you're lucky if you're going to walk again. And they even said they wanted to maybe take the leg off. I mean, he mangled it. And this was his, his, what am I going to do? And Gus Karras came to his rescue and he said, Harley, you're coming home, meeting St. Louis or uh, St. Joe and, and that era. He says, you're coming home and we're going to have doctors, the best doctors we can get, and we're going we're gonna to get you fixed up. We had faith that you can do this. So Harley overcame that. And before you know it, I mean, later on in life, you'd never know that he had a, a bad leg and he had a plate in his leg and that sort of thing. The guy also had a plate in his arm that he'd had in a car accident. Uh, <clears throat> early on in his career, him and his wife, his first wife and their young daughter, they were in an accident. Harley was speeding, etc., And the wife and the daughter were killed. So he overcame, you know, not only personal tragedy, because that's insurmountable to face that, but also the injuries that he had to incur as a young kid and then to come in to the AWA, and it was Larry Hennig, 
who went to Wally Carble when Harley come on. Harley came in and wrestled a TV match and by himself, just as Harley race. Um, Larry went there and he said, you know, went to Wally and he said, you know, I want to work with this. Let me work with this kid. I like him. I, I like what I see. Now, Larry was, oh, how much older? Larry would be 83 right now and, or no, yeah, 83 and Harley just passed at 76. So there's uh, seven years between them. Okay. So Harley's 21, Larry is 28, and they hook up and they become this great tag team. And of course, it was immediately handsome Harley race, and it was pretty boy Larry Hennig. And Larry had turned heel, oh, about six to eight months earlier, kind of put a rougher edge to his style because he'd been a babyface previous, and he'd put on some, some weight, and so he was a little bit bigger. Larry always said that he was uh, surface transportation and that Harley was the high flyer of the team, which is very true. I mean, they just made a, a good combination. But they got a mega push from October of, of uh, 64 when they were hooked up. And the, the intent from the get-go was that they were going to become the AWA Tag Team Champions. And what had happened was, um, as they were undefeated until the end of December of 64, they were in a program for about three cards in the various cities. They ran it around the circuit. They were wrestling against Vern Gagne and Reggie Parks. And the climax to this thing was that all along, Hannigan Race were claiming they were going to eventually win the tag team title. Well, our champions at the time were the Crusher and the Bruiser, who were heels at the time, and the Crusher had lost a loser leave the AWA match to Vern Gagne back in the summer of 64. And he was gone. And it was one of his regular self-imposed vacations that he took. But to the fans, it was a loser leave town. The crusher was gone. He was a bad guy and he was gone. Well, and of course, the bruiser, he wasn't a regular in the AWA at the time because he was running his own WWA promotion in Indianapolis territory. So the AWA technically, though we had tag team champions for the fall of 64, technically we didn't because they weren't here defending. And Hennig and Race are bragging that we're going we're gonna to eventually beat them. Okay. So this match with Parks and Ganya, for one of them, Wilbur Snyder was in town and on the card. And he comes to ringside and sits there to watch the tag team match. And, of course, he's there saying, I'm here watching my buddy Vern and Reggie, and I'm just observing the match. Well, during the course of the match, you know, and you could see this coming. I mean, a blind man could have seen this coming. Wilbur starts pointing out to the referee that Hennig and Race are breaking the rules. And finally, there gets to be a confrontation and Hennigan shouting at Snyder and, and it ends up where Hennigan race are disqualified. Hennig gets on TV along with Harley and they said, you know, Wilbur Snyder putting his nose in our business. If he wants to get in our business, why doesn't he join Gagne and Parks and we'll find a partner. So they're setting all of this up. Well, we go a week or two weeks. Who's your partner going to be? We're not telling you, but you're going to be surprised. 
So eventually, they come up with, of all people, Dick the Bruiser. And that's a surprise because the Bruiser's been out of town, and he's half of the tag team champions. So Hennigan Race, Harley is bragging that we pulled the coup because we got the man that holds half of the tag team championships, so now what kind of team do we have? You know, we got the best partner we could come up with that you could have. So during the course of the actual match, and of course you got Snyder on the other side, and then, you know, the interesting thing is, and we didn't know this at the time, Glenn, but behind the scenes, Snyder and Bruiser, of course, are the best of friends, as, as were the others, sure. but they're the best of friends and they're co-promoting the Indianapolis Territory together. But bottom line is, during the course of the match, Hennig and Race are tagging in and tagging out with one another. And Bruiser, every time he puts his hand out or tries to get in the ring, the referee would push him back and he didn't get tagged. And he starts prancing on the ring apron, you know, and kind of snarling and grunting and groaning, you know, ticked off that he's not getting in. Well, this goes on until the third fall. And during that time period, they're still not letting him get in the ring. And they're just avoiding him, Hennig and Rates are. Well, finally, Bruiser has enough. So he climbs through the ring. Ring, the ring ropes and he takes Hennig by the hair and he takes Harley by the hair and he rams their heads together. Hennig goes flying out of the ring onto the floor. Harley falls to the mat. Reggie Parks falls on, I'm sorry, Wilbur Snyder fall, fell on him for the pin. One, two, three. And this marked the first time that the Hennig race team had been defeated since they came together. At least that's the way they had you believing it because they did have some disqualification losses and that sort of thing along the way, but they've been defeated. Well, now you got your perfect setup. Hennig and Race are just livid on TV the following week. That Benedict Arnold, that modern-day Judas Dick the Bruiser, he stabbed us in the back. We want him in a match. We're going we're gonna to finish him off. And the Bruiser, he comes in and he says, I don't know where the crusher is, but I am going to search every bar in Milwaukee. I'm going to search every honky-tonk, and I'm going to find him. And when I do, we'll take care of Hennig and Race, and we'll shut him up once and for all. So they're, they're building up this showdown between these two teams. Bear in mind, Crusher and Bruiser are still heels, technically, in the eyes of the fans. Well, the big match comes off. Finally, in January, the middle of January, about the 15th, in uh, St. Paul, and they have the match. Crusher and Bruiser are there. The special referee is Tiny Mills, because only a guy as big as Tiny Mills, king of the lumberjacks, could handle these four brutes, right? And during the one of the falls, Tiny is knocked down, falls out of the ring, hits his back on the ring apron, and he's supposedly injured. We've got uh, no no referee, and the call goes out that we need a referee out here. Nobody comes out. You got these four guys piling into one another. Vern Gagne comes out, and Vern is in his sports jacket and the whole thing. He says, "I'll ref the darn thing." He said, "Nobody back there wants to come out right now and take care of these guys, so I'll ref it." Hennig is complaining. Race is complaining that Gagne is the ref. Because they're having, they're they're in the middle of a battle with him as well, and the Crusher is protesting because he hates that turkey neck Vern Gagne, and that was the name that he had given Vern. That's where that term came from, from the Crusher. 
He didn't want Vern. So technically you got that suspense added now that you got Vern in the ring with basically four enemies. And that doesn't seem safe. I mean, just the scenario, the whole buildup and the tension of the match, it's so beautifully taken, you know, coming down. Well, during the course of the match, Ganya ends up decking race. I'm sorry, decking Hennig, and they lose. Crusher and Bruiser go away still as champs. Hennig and Race in between. They, Hennig had a match with Vern in between the, the next title shot. Harley was on the card. I think he wrestled uh, Wilbur Snyder again. And the bottom line was is they had a rematch at the end of January on the 31st, and Crusher and Bruiser lost. Bruiser, of course, was gone. Crusher now was back in town in full swing, and he became the new babyface. And that's where his popularity, that's where his babyface turn all started, right in that match. And it was Hennig and Race that put him over. Now, we talked a little bit ago about Harley Race, about what a tough individual he was. So two weeks into their championship reign, Larry and Harley and Rene Goulet and Eddie Sharkey, and there may have been a couple of other wrestlers, but those are the, the four that I know for sure were there. They're at a lounge called the Chestnut Tree in downtown Minneapolis, a nightclub. And it was fairly close to where the old wrestling office used to be on uh, 6th and Hennepin at the Dykeman Hotel. And the wrestlers would go there uh, after the matches at the Minneapolis Auditorium. So late at night, well, as they're there, there were three uh, guys that were beating up on or pushing a lady around in the lounge, kind of slapping her around a little bit. And Harley intervened on the behalf of the woman. He literally took two of the guys out right away. I mean, he knocked them out. Well, the third guy come up behind Harley and put a knife into his shoulder blade in the back. Harley went down. He was taken to the hospital. It was announced in the morning papers. It was on the news that local wrestler who Harley Race uh, came to the woman's rescue. And they announced it on All-Star Wrestling the following week that Harley was a hero. He, he came to the ladies' rescue, but he's in the hospital. And, Har and then Larry had to wrestle. Oh, there was about a month's worth of matches where they would have been Hennig and Race signed for them, but Hennig had to take on a, uh, a masked partner. And this is only, I'm only sharing this with you because he's replacing Race. He was just called Masked Man. That's original, right? Yeah. Mask man. Well, the guy under the mask was a journeyman wrestler who had been in the area off and on named Tony Nero. And he just put a mask on and he was replacing Harley and he, there, he just fulfilled the, you know, his bookings. So a month goes by, Harley's not in action. And then he's going to come back after this stabbing. Uh, he comes in for the first arena match at All-Star Wrestling on TV. And they introduce, returning after the incident, a month or so back from the knife injury, they introduce him. Glenn, it was interesting because the studio audience, the small studio TV audience, stood up and clapped like in a standing ovation for Harley Race. Now, they're the heels. Oh, yeah. So the bell rings. Harley starts the match, the tag. And... I'm telling you, 
to this day, and I was only 14 years old or 15 years old at the time, I'm still in awe that the bell rang, and I swear to you it wasn't 30 seconds, and Harley had his heat back because he was just beating the crap out of the opponent, and the fans were booing him. And later on, Harley said, I knew I had to get my heat back. I can't be a hero. <laughs> so true. And it was beautiful. But the one thing about that knife wound, you know, it's part of the, again, Harley being the tough guy that he was. Um, if anyone ever looked closely for the remainder of his life, Harley did have a scar on, the, on his back shoulder blade that was in the shape of almost like a half moon. And that knife that was put in there, um, back in the day, they said it came within inches of his heart. I don't know, you know, how accurate that was, if there was a little bit of uh, uh, exaggeration to it to make it sound, you know, better or what. But um, nonetheless, he did legitimately have the knife wound and he was off of wrestling. And that was another example of just how tough he was. But he was the kind of a guy that goes back to, and, and Eddie Sharkey has retold that same story because Eddie was there. And, uh, you know, just that Harley was the kind of a guy that was, he didn't know fear. I mean, here's three guys that are pushing this lady around and Harley doesn't flinch. He just goes right in there and gets her into the business. And I think that's not only honorable, but, you know, other people could say it's a little stupid too because the chances are he could have been, been nailed good. So there you go. That is just an amazing story. I mean, just to hear about his, his you know, not only, you know, step, stepping up and, and defending uh, somebody's honor, but, uh, you know, getting hurt and getting the stab wound and getting really, you know, laid up for a while. But the thing for me is, you know, Harley, that wasn't the end of his career, man. This was like very early on in his campaign to have something like that happen to him. To, but he was able to get back. It's just, again, a testament to how tough and strong-willed and stubborn this man was and how his, you know, he was set on, on I'm maintaining a career and man, did he ever maintain a career? Because, you know, it wasn't all that long after a while that did Harley, you know, went from being this great tag team wrestler to evolving into the singles wrestler that, you know, a lot of us younger guys got to know and find out and love, you know, later on and, and get to read about. I mean, geez, he went from one act to another. I mean, going from tag team to singles and, you know, in between suffering, you know, this almost life threatening injury. It's like, I'm I'm just amazed at the work ethic and just the strong will of this man. Well, and you know, the thing about life, and we know this as we go along, sometimes more things happen to you by accident than, than do on purpose or as planned. You know, a lot of times you're just in the, the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time, you know, whatever the case may be. And with Harley, um, Harley not only said this in his book that he has out, that, uh, you know, I'd encourage people just look up the Harley race book. It's a nice read. I mean, it's not totally breaking kayfabe, but it's a nice read from Harley's perspective. But he does say in there that the only reason he ever left the AWA and left the team with Hennig was that for kind of two reasons. One Hennig broke his leg in November of 1967, and he was out of action until March of 68. 
And Larry, just speaking of that broken leg, Larry struggled the rest of his career with a stiff leg that he worked with. And you'd never know it in, in his later matches, but Harley had, a, had issues with his knee and his leg the rest of his career. But he was out of action. And during that six-month time period, uh, Harley was in singles matches primarily in the AWA. He had a great program against Vern Gagne. And uh, towards the end of... Uh, uh, 67 going into the first half of 68 and he had teamed briefly with hard-boiled Haggerty who came back in but he had Harley started doing the singles matches with guys like Cowboy Bill Watts and he was in there against Vern and Reggie Parks and Wilbur Snyder and you know some of the, the best baby faces of that time frame and so when when Larry comes back to action in 68 the team was put back together for a few months and Harley wanted to move on. Harley wanted to travel. And he, he basically said to Larry, he said, let's go, you know, let's travel together. Well, Larry wasn't going to leave. Larry was a homebody. He was, you know, here in the home territory. He had a family. He didn't want to pack the family up and leave. And Harley states in his book, he said, you know, had, had Larry wanted to go with me, maybe we'd still be teaming, it says in his book. Well, it was funny because when I was talking with Larry last November on that day at the brewery, Larry made that same comment. He said, Harley and I never had a crossword, and we've always been friends, and we probably would have stayed together longer than we did if I would have you know, been willing to travel more than, than I did. And so that's what broke it up. Well, what Harley did then, and this is where you just kind of come into being in the right place at the right time. In 1960, uh, early 69, when he finally left the AWA, he was, he was wrestling back home in his central states territory for Pat O'Connor and Bob Geigel, who were the behind the scenes owners of the territory. And Harley went back home and started working there, and he was working St. Louis and some other places. He was down in Amarillo, and he bought into the promotion with O'Connor and Geigel. And now he's part owner of his own company, and then he's close to the, uh, to the Funk brothers, Dory and Terry, and it just started to come together that, you know what, this would be one of the guys that you could groom to eventually possibly be the NWA champion. Now, again, sometimes stuff happens that wasn't originally planned. The whole idea with Dory Jr. was that he wanted to be relieved of the title. He'd had his three years, whatever it was, and he was tired. He wanted to have a break. So he was going to lose the title, but he would not lose it to the guy they wanted him to lose it to, and that was Jack Briscoe. They had a personal rivalry where Dory, the Funk family, was not going to lose the title to a Briscoe. I mean, that was legit behind the scenes. They were friends, but they weren't. It was kind of like Luthez not putting Vern Gagne over. They were friends, but neither was going to do the job for the other. So Harley Race got, you know, they, the story goes that Dory Jr. was injured on his, his uh, ranch, was out of action for a little bit. Didn't have the match with Briscoe. Harley got a match in Kansas City with him, and Harley won the title. And that was the behind-the-scenes agreement. We'll let the title go to race, 
And then the original plan was is that Jack Briscoe was going to get it. So Harley only had the title his first run from May of 73 until July 20th of 73. But during that time, that, that brief uh, eight, six to eight week period, Harley had traveled many dates for the NWA defending the championship. And that was when the NWA promoters, they said, you know what? This guy's got it. He can run with this. And Harley lost it to Briscoe. Briscoe had his two years. And then when uh, Briscoe finally dropped it to Terry Funk, it was Harley Race who came back again and ended up beating Terry Funk for the title, which gives him the honor to have be the only champion to defeat two legit brothers for the NWA title. But Harley started his second reign, and we know that he went on to have eight different, or you know, a total of eight different reigns. But he was he became the the standard bear for the company. And it's the second time around for Harley, the the reign was a, a lot longer, and uh, it, it was what nearly uh you know what uh, over nine at least over nine hundred days. And the fact was, you know, again, this was the guy that you could have to count on to travel to all the, the spots in the territories to make the guys uh, look good, but to almost look like they have a chance as the champion and to keep moving on. And I think we found a a, a true road warrior in, in and of itself with Harley, just how the durability of a guy who could stay on the road for so long and to hold on to such a, a title like the NWA championship and, and make all those towns hit all those spots and not only those spots in the States and Canada, but there was also international stuff to worry about too. Well, he did the Japan several tours. He did New Zealand, Australia. And you know, the thing about the NWA champion is a lot of people, they say, well, the three big promotions back in that era were the AWA, NWA and the WWF, or it was a WWWF for a while. But, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that technically the NWA was not a promotion. It was a champion. They didn't have territories. It was basically they recognized a group of promoters that put that whole thing together, and Sam Muchnick was in charge most of the time through the uh, reign of the NWA. But they didn't promote in a particular territory. The champion just went to all of these territories that had a promoter that was a member of the NWA. And so when Harley would go into Tennessee or he'd go up into Michigan or he'd go to work for Bruiser or he'd go uh, to Florida for Eddie Graham or down to Texas for Paul Bosch or, or uh, Fritz von Erich down there or the Funks or whatever it was, California, Pacific Northwest, Harley would be the guy that would just go in and wrestle again, like I mentioned earlier, the local babyface that was built up to be the top contender or the local bad guy that was the contender. And he would go in and do just a lot of traveling. Now, the thing about the NWA champion is if you look at some of the reigns of Luthez, Pat O'Connor, Buddy Rogers, Gene Kaniski, Dory Jr., all of them had between like a two and a three year run. That was kind of the norm that when you got the NWA title, that was going, and Briscoe had the same thing. That was going to be your, your time frame as champion. Well, the irony of it is, is that it was typically the schedule of the champion that eventually the guys were worn out and they wanted to 
take the belt. I got to have some time off. I need a lesser schedule here. So Harley example, and this goes back to 1996. I was sitting on my deck at my house with Nick Bockwinkel, and we were doing an interview for a magazine. And Nick was telling me that a few years earlier in the uh, 70s, he had been offered a chance to have the NWA title himself. Fritz von Erich wanted to, he was one of the promoters that was pushing for Nick to get a chance. Now we all know Nick, we all know that Nick got Vern's title in 75. And this would have been about 77 or 78, whatever it was that time frame. And Nick said, I did the math. I looked at Harley's schedule that he was doing and Harley, and this is documented. I mean, you know, me being a results freak, Harley was wrestling. First of all, remember, there's only 365 days in a calendar year. Harley was wrestling on average about 370 or more matches a year. Now think about that. There were times when he'd do an afternoon matinee in one town, grab an airplane, get to the next town, and do an evening card. And Nick says, I look at Harley's schedule. He has no time off. And he's one night he's in Australia, and the next night he's in, he's in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And then the next night he's in Florida. And then, you know, then he flies to Japan. And this was the way it went for the NWA champion, at least during Harley's era. So Nick says he's wrestling every day of the year. And Nick says at the time, I'm, I'm Vern's champion. And I'm only wrestling about six months out of the year. That doesn't mean he had six months, you know, consecutive months off, but he'd wrestle three or four nights a week on average. And when it all broke down, he was wrestling half of the year. And he said, and I was making the same amount of money. And so he said, it just made good sense for me. But Harley was the kind of a guy, and that was during Harley's second reign, and, you know, Harley came back again and took the title when they asked him to other times. Yep. So that's the kind of a workhorse he was. He just enjoyed what he was doing. And, you know, George, uh, we're going to we're getting closer now. Boy, we've been talking so much. It just uh, we're going to go right now to, uh, you know, Harley's last great run with the belt was in 1983. In 1983, he, of course, dropped it in uh, the very first Starcade closed circuit uh, show that was going on. Kind of the precursor to what uh, became the standard norm here of, that we have up to today with pay-per-views and all of that. These were kind of the baby step stuff with the closed circuit. And Starcade was one of those, per, you know, prominent uh, shows. And this was the big one uh, where, where Ric Flair, uh, you know, the nationwide audience, the closed circuit audience uh, got to see uh, a flair for the gold with Harley uh, putting him over uh, for Harley's last and uh, ending his last reign as a champion. But at that time, it was almost like a changing of the guard, too, when, you know, things eventually turned to what they did with expansion. But, uh, yeah, he kind of got to be at that at the, his last big, big, big triumph was kind of the beginning of uh, things that that later on evolved into what modern-day wrestling became. Well, you know, Harley was, was smart, too, Glenn, because, and by the way, before I forget, was the, the Flair race match, the Starcade one you mentioned, is that the one that Gene Kaniski was the referee for? Correct. That was the cage match? Yes, sir. 
Okay, that's the one I remember, and that's the one I thought we were talking about. Okay, um, you have to remember, too, that as the 80s moved on, we got into the very early 90s. As with all of the promotions that were starting to fall by the wayside because of the expansion of the WWF at the time, um, a lot of these promotions, they hung on as long as they could, some longer than others. But Harley Race's own Central States promotion with Geigel and uh, O'Connor, eventually Race, he said, I've had it. I'm selling out here. He sold his interest in St. Louis. Vern Gagne and, and uh, Harley Race were actually partners in St. Louis after, along with O'Connor after uh, Sam Muchnick was out of the picture. So they tried to hang on for as long as they could. But Harley eventually said, you know what, I got the offer to go to the WWF, which back in that era, when one of these mainstream stars like a Harley Race or a Dusty Rhodes or any of these guys would go to the WWF, if you think back, it was usually where Vince was making a cartoon out of them or not mentioning their past. You know, they came in like they were born yesterday. There was no NWA title for Harley Race when he came in. They'd mentioned that he was handsome Harley Race and he was a tough guy, but they don't mention other titles. Same with Dusty and some of the others. And Harley took on that role of, of King Harley Race, which by his own admission was one of the silliest things he ever did. But even when he portrayed it, if you think back to those matches, he was, he was still Harley Race in the ring. We, we still had the same wrestler. We didn't have a cartoon wrestler. We just had a cartoon character with the crown and the robe and the pageantry that went on with it and, the, uh, you know, the midget wrestlers laying out red carpeting for him and all this stuff. But uh, race always portrayed the business. And here's an interesting compliment, if you want to give a guy a compliment, too. There's always wrestlers that... A wrestler will say, I'm not afraid of anybody, but that guy, I'm afraid of him. You know, Billy Robinson had a lot of respect from wrestlers because they knew that Billy was one of those guys you didn't cross because he'd twist you up, eat you, and spit you out. Okay? So he had that respect. Well, Harley Race, Andre the Giant admittedly said more than once that there were only two wrestlers that he totally feared. He had the greatest respect for, and he worked with them, but two wrestlers that he totally feared. One was Haku, and we know he's legit tough, or was back in the day. Oh, yeah. And the other one was Harley Race. That's that's his best ticket you can have, because I think the natural thought process is, is that you know, if Andre didn't want you to beat him, he'll just sit on you and it's over. I mean, that's because he's just the giant. But the, the giant technically didn't have any real wrestling skills, but it was his size that was the, the draw and the, the odd about him. But Harley Race, he feared. You and know, I think that's a pretty high compliment. 
and you know, you know, of course, but you know, Harley uh, wrapped up his uh, in-ring career. We talked a little bit about the time he worked with in WCW as a, a manager for Vader and, and Lex Luger. But you know, as he retired, you know, he still, you know, he may not have been in the ring, and he may what, what they call retired. But but Harley still had a presence in, in wrestling, uh, whether it be training behind the scenes or, or becoming this elder statesman that the young people would go sit and, and listen, sit under his learning tree. So you know, I, I think a, a lot of Harley, uh, you know for this generation and even younger now was that he was able to be there and was very giving of his time considering that you know he had to do he had to deal with his share of uh, health setbacks too but the, i mean the people and the young even the younger guys in the locker rooms they they know that name and some of them still hold harley in awe and, and they never even got to see him live and in the ring well and i think that's the thing if your legacy lives on and the fact that you you leave people with that type of a memory I think the interesting about Harley, too, is that if you go back and look at his NWA title defenses, here was a guy who wrestles this 300, you know, 70 nights a year. And there were so many of those matches that were one-hour broadways. Now, the interesting thing about that is that goes back to that story of Harley wrestling a broomstick. There were a lot of guys that he wrestled that by no stretch of the imagination were they of Harley caliber in the ring. But Harley could make them look like they were. Going back to he makes everybody look good. And the thing that always surprised me was Harley from day one was a heavy smoker. He smoked all the time. In fact, again, Larry Hennig mentioned that to me uh, last November. He says, Harley was smoking all the time. Well, he had lung cancer as he went through this last year. And, you know, that was, I think I even saw that listed in one of the uh, newspaper clippings that it was contributing to his, his, uh, his death. But to have that, that stamina to go an hour every night and to have the travel schedule and everything that he did, I think that says a lot. And here's a man who was, you know, I don't know how much he smoked, but it was certainly a couple packs a day or more for probably his whole life since he was 13 years old. And, you know, and that life that was ended on, on August 1st, 2019, at the age of 76, as we're wrapping up today, uh, some, some news came out this week uh, that came over through the, re- the usual wrestling wires and online that talked about, uh, you want to talk about someone, you know, that had so much respect. There, there were stories uh, that have come out about Vince McMahon actually kind of helping out in the end as far as picking up some of the medical bills for Harley. And, you know, we talk a lot about Vince, good, bad, or ugly, but this is one of those times where we could say, you know, what a, that was a, a good, right thing to do, especially for all the great years that these wrestlers have performed, uh, whether in the territories or for his, his dad or himself. I mean, again, this is one of those times where we could say Vince, Vince really, truly uh, did, did the right thing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there are many times and we can... Uh, pay accolades to some of the things Vince does and has done behind the scenes. And uh, that was one of them. You know, the other thing was, is that Harley in his final years started his wrestling school in Kansas city. Uh, Trying to think of the name of the city. It wasn't Kansas city. It was um, Elgin or something. I'm, I'm messing that up, but it was in that neighborhood. He had his wrestling school, his world league. And Vince was actually getting some talent from, from Harley and he was, you know, not getting in the ring himself, so to speak anymore, but he had guys working with him to train some of the young kids. Um, 
And Kurt Hennig, when he got into the business, his his two uh, basic trainers were were Vern Gagne in the AWA and Harley Race. Uh, Larry actually sent Kurt to Harley and got his uh, early training as well. So it goes back, you know, even to the to the mid '80s, early '80s that uh, Harley started doing this, and so he brought a lot of young talent in. But the bottom line is, is that when you list wrestlers, you know, there, there's all kinds of wrestlers out there that you you can remember. And Harley is one of those that I know we say this, and we probably said it ourselves when we've talked about our, our heroes that have left us. That word legend gets tossed around so much. You know, it seems like everybody was a legend. And the reality is, is that there are, were so many phenomenal workers in the business but not all of them were legends. And I think Harley Race certainly attained that status. That if you go back and you look at the legit tough guys, the best draws, the best world champions, the best representative of the business, and making it look real, I think that says legend, and I think that says Harley Race. Many and I really believe that that's the way he'll go down in history. Many have come and gone. Yes, that legend's name gets uh, bantied around for a lot of people. I call those, some are alleged. Harley was a legend. There you go. Well, thank you, George. This has uh, been a fast-moving uh, ha- hour of uh, wrestling memories as we remember the life of handsome Harley Race. And, man... You know, it's always sad when we say goodbye to our legends, but, you know, it's always cool that we're able to sit and we can talk about these people. And we're going to talk about these people long after we hit the stop button today and end this program. But it's just so nice that, you know, there's outlets where we can share and we can talk and and, and we can just really celebrate these people. Well, and one last thing before we go. Mick Karch said on his page a while back, he said, everybody talks about Ric Flair. He says, I talk about Harley Race. Harley was the one that passed the torch to Flair. And the thing about the difference between Flair and Harley is that Flair's match, whether whether people want to admit it or not, if you see a Flair match, each match is pretty much a same match. Flair makes the same moves Mm -hmm. at the same time, doing the same turnbuckle, fall to the floor, the whole thing. You know, the same mannerisms. If you watch a Harley race match, Harley race lets the opponent make the match. And that's a major difference. And not every wrestler could do that. Harley did. And that's what made him great. And when you heard a a Harley interview back in my era, when he'd come out as handsome Harley, and he would say, I have the body of Hercules, the mind of Einstein, the face of the goddess of love. He says, I have a body that men fear and women crave. How can you love that guy? (laughs) You're going to draw heat right away. And when you get into the ring and you point to a lady at ringside and you say, wouldn't you rather be sitting with me instead of that big fat guy with drinking the beer next to you? You know, that was the way he generated his early heat. But he, had, he evolved into a no-nonsense, legit tough guy. And his interviews, if you listen to his interviews, they were also methodical and thought out. He didn't shout and scream and rant and spit, but he, he, he'd raise his voice, but he'd make you believe. Harley Race was a legend. He was a real deal.
So yes, great hour. God thank, bless Harley Race. God bless Harley Race. And uh, thank you so much, George. Uh, again, uh, you come anytime uh, we get together to talk. It's always good, and the door is always open for an OG Wrestling Memories co-host. All right, we'll do it again soon. Absolutely. For George Shire, I'm Glenn Brockett. This has been Wrestling Memories Then and Now.